Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode of the podcast, I talk with reporter Riley Snyder and editor John Ralston about the goings-on at the special session to fill a $1.2 billion budget hole. After that, reporter Michelle Rendells and you, Joey, talk with the state treasurer, Zach Conine, about a program to help renters and businesses with rent once the eviction moratorium comes to an end. That's right. But before we get to that, you and Megan Messerly, our healthcare reporter, have a new segment on the coronavirus. Megan Messerly covers healthcare for the Nevada Independent, and she's been our COVID-19 maven since March. Megan's with me now. Megan, how you doing? I'm doing great. Great. So uh, first, I think we want to break down some of the weekly numbers. Now, we're recording this on Thursday, July 16th in the afternoon. So by the time you listen to this on Friday, it's going to be out of date. So first, Megan, where does the state stand today when it comes to the numbers? Right. So we're at 31,918 COVID-19 cases total since the beginning of the pandemic as of today, Thursday at 3 p.m. Um, I did some math and pulled our numbers from, from the last week. So including today, the numbers that we have reported so far today, there have been 6,848 new cases reported. So, I mean, just looking at those numbers, you can see how, how significant of an increase um, we've seen. And obviously, for those folks who've been keeping an eye on the data, this, this sort of isn't a, a new trend. It's been something that we've been watching for the last couple of weeks now. Okay. And uh, so when it comes to some of those trends, I want to dig into some of the stories you've written about the topic over the last week. And a couple have to do with something that's come up a lot. And that's people basically saying that uh, cases from Arizona are inflating hospitalizations in Nevada, and uh, that people who are visiting Las Vegas as tourists are either catching it here or bringing it here. So uh, let's dig into that hospitalizations from Arizona first. You looked into that. Uh, What did you find? Yeah, so I'd been getting a lot of questions from readers about this, just as you said, saying, okay, well, COVID-19 cases are increasing in Nevada, but is it just because we all know that Arizona is experiencing the spike in cases right now? Is that why we're seeing so many um, new cases? And so I reached out to all the major hospital systems in Southern Nevada, since obviously Southern Nevada borders Arizona, uh, to see, okay, you know, is is this a real phenomenon? And, And from what I found, out so some hospitals like uh, Sunrise Hospital Medical Center they uh, have taken coronavirus patients but they say it's represented only about two percent of their total COVID-19 cases uh, throughout the whole pandemic so it's not a significant part of their case volume. Uh, the Valley Health System which has six hospitals in Southern Nevada they told me that they don't take coronavirus patient transfer so they will accept transfers of Arizona patients for you know certain procedures that need a higher level of care but they're not taking coronavirus patients specifically. Uh, Others like UMC uh, in Southern Nevada, they told me that they also do not uh, specifically take uh, coronavirus transfers. However, they have had some patients who um, get transferred to UMC because it's uh, the level one trauma center uh, in Southern Nevada. So it it serves as the trauma center for sort of the whole whole region. Uh, And so they have had some trauma patients that have gotten transferred to UMC that did end up testing positive for COVID-19. Hospitals are keeping a close eye on this. So they're trying to test everyone who 
who comes through their doors to see, okay, do you have COVID? Do we need to take extra precautions uh, with you, even if you're you know, not coming in for COVID treatment? So essentially what I found talking to these um, hospitals is that this really isn't a significant contributor. There have been cases uh, of, corona of Arizona patients who have coronavirus who have been treated in Nevada, but it doesn't seem to be a significant contributor, contributor to our hospitalization total. Okay. And so then there was another story sort of semi-related to this, which is uh, to what degree are tourists either bringing the virus to Las Vegas or catching the virus in Las Vegas and then going back to their home states? You looked into that too. What did you find? Right. So it was really interesting. Uh, So I got some data from the state. This only covers the time period from June 1st to July 6th. So it's just a snapshot of the most recent couple of weeks. Uh, And the state's data was really interesting. It showed that actually only five out of state residents have gone home after visiting Nevada while they were infectious with COVID-19 and ended up testing positive, which to me, when I saw that just seemed kind of like a little bit of a low number. You would just expect just based on the visitors who come here, that that number might be a little bit higher, even if, you know, it was just sort of a normal course of events, not necessarily there was a hotspot or anything like that. So I reached out to the state about it and sort of asked them what their read was on that number. And they told me just the difficulties there are in reporting uh, between states these kinds of cases. Everyone's sort of overwhelmed trying to contact trace. The amount of effort that needs to go in to get to that patient, you know, have them explain, okay, yes, I was in Las Vegas. That case then actually has to be transferred from their local health jurisdiction up to that state uh, level. And then that state will transfer the information to Nevada. Then Nevada has to transfer that back down to Las Vegas. It's kind of this lengthy process to get that information from, you know, point A to point D in this case, there's a couple of steps in there. Um, And so they sort of attributed that to the reason why we've seen this low number, not necessarily because there aren't more people who have been infectious while visiting, uh, but that it's just really hard to keep track of that information. And then the second part that you mentioned was um, out-of-state visitors who've actually tested positive while they're here in Nevada. And that data showed that there were 118 people who fell into that category. Uh, Nearly half of them were from California, which you kind of would, it makes sense. We have a lot of visitors from California. Um, And so that was really interesting as well. I was talking to the state officials about this and they were noting these are people who are probably becoming symptomatic upon, you know, coming to Nevada. If you think about okay, when am I going to go get a COVID test? You're probably going to do it in your your home state versus being in another state. So these are probably people who had symptoms and decided it was, you know, severe enough or serious enough that they needed to go and, and seek out care. And so they thought that was a really interesting number and sort of speaking to that problem of, you know, what do you do when you're welcoming visitors back to Nevada? But some of these folks might have contracted coronavirus and might become symptomatic while they're here. Wow. So I want to finish up uh, today's segment uh, with a quick touch on what's happening in Elko. Now, there was a sewage study in Elko County uh, that has revealed a bit more about uh, what they think is the community spread there. Can you explain what's going on? Yeah, it's really interesting. And they've done these in some communities. There was actually a study in uh, New Haven done by Yale looking at um, sewage and coronavirus. They found actually a pretty strong correlation between uh, sewage samples and then um, actually seeing those cases show up at the population through testing. And so this ELCO study, they said that a a recent sample showed that there were roughly um, 2,000 active cases in ELCO, or the equivalent of 2,000 active cases, which for anyone who knows the size of ELCO, it's only about, ELCO County, it's only about 20,000 people. So this is a a really high uh, percentage of people who would would be 
sort of actively positive right now, especially compared to the numbers that we've seen reported out of Elko County. So last night, Elko County reported that there were only 151 active uh, infections out of only 288 cases total. So this just sort of speaks to the question of, you know, are we testing everybody? Are we finding the, all the cases of coronavirus that are out there? Are there people who have mild symptoms or who are asymptomatic? who we're missing. And that's a question that we've had, you know, throughout this pandemic, even as has testing has ramped up, there's still this question of, okay, are we finding cases? Are there more cases out there that we don't know about? Um, and obviously this, this study would seem to suggest that that, that may be true um, in Elko County. Okay. Well, that's a fascinating study and we'll have to see where it goes from there. But for now, Megan Messerly, she covers healthcare for the Nevada Independent. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. All right, and so I'm here with our fearless editor, John Ralston, who has been editing until 2.30 a.m. last night, and we've had uh, many uh, interesting twists and turns in this special session that's going on to fill the budget hole, the $1.2 billion budget hole that the state has, and uh, John's here with me to talk about it. So, John, how's it going so far? Are you, are you awake? Uh, I'm groggy, and by the way, I, I hate to correct you off the top, Joey, but I was editing until 3.30 in the morning. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. Well, at 2.30, I checked my phone and you guys were all still up. And so here we are about six hours later and you're up and with a cup of coffee ready to talk about what's going on at the special session. So, you know, let's just start at the beginning. You know, what has happened so far? Well, it's already, I think, gone on much longer than, than uh, most people had predicted. And, and uh, Riley uh, and Megan and, and Michelle, Riley and Michelle are up there and Megan is covering from down here. have done a phenomenal job of covering all the twists and turns. And Riley has been tracking where this ranks in, in, in the length in terms of special sessions. And this is going to be, end up being one of the longest ones. We're talking on day 10, I believe, Joey. And of mm -hmm. course, both houses are, have taken the day off, which, you know, we here at the Indy don't have the luxury of doing, but apparently they do. And, and so, listen, they, they could have gotten out in a few days just to deal with the budget. Remember, there's talk of a special session to deal with other policy issues, but mm -hmm. it never works out that way. And you have all the other complications. Remember, there, there was a positive test for a legislator of COVID, and then there's so there was more testing, and now people are participating remotely, which is somewhat controversial. It's never happened in the history of the state, and so they they've only passed essentially what I would call the low hanging fruit, which is the stuff that everybody kind of agrees on, uh, sweeping money out of uh, funds that, that they can use to help balance the budget, and and uh, having mining prepay its taxes. Which, which was part of a controversial bill that we can talk about that uh, kept us up uh, so, so late. This is what they always do though, Joey. Unfortunately, I've been around so long, I've seen this movie a few times and they just do a bunch of gimmickry and, and, and don't really address the, the major budget problems. On the other hand, they've never had a budget problem like this, right? A, a pandemic has crushed the economy. As you mentioned, a $1.2 billion hole, which won't seem like much in a state like New York and California, or California. but here it's about a quarter of the budget or, or, or more. And so it, it's absolutely devastating. And so I, I actually have some sympathy for them, but they may use the entire 20 day constitutional limit on this special session. So yeah, I mean, $1.2 billion is a ton of money. 
that they need to find. And, you know, watching these hearings, they're, they're like, oh, well, we've got about, you know, 30 million here, you know, 50 million here. And I think that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to keep cutting, you know, little pieces here and there. Do you think that they're going to be able to do this? I mean, they have to, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, they have to balance the budget. Now, they don't have to do all of those cuts right now because we're into a new fiscal year. The budget is balanced for the previous fiscal year. The new fiscal year started in July, but at some point it's going to become a serious problem. And the real issue, Joey, is that they have to give the school districts some certainty of how much money they're going to have because they have to open pretty soon, whether it's in person or a hybrid or distance learning or whatever, they, they need to know what resources uh, they are going to have. And, and the cuts are most devastating. As you said, the hearings have shown this in healthcare and in education. And it's by, there's a bipartisan consensus that certain things need to be put back, but they're not gonna nearly get all the way there. And even if the mining tax proposal had passed or by some miracle ends up coming back and passes, they still will have to, to make substantial cuts because they can't, close that hole completely with just the kind of gimmickry that I, that I talked about. They just can't. And so they're going to try to minimize the damage while uh, maintaining their viability for the November election, which believe me, every single one of them is thinking about, if not every single one, most of them are, and certainly the Democratic Party and Republican Party folks are thinking about. And so uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, I, I can't imagine, I have to believe that in the history of special sessions, this is the this is the most unpleasant one that any legislators have ever had to endure because of the task before them and because of the pandemic and the social distancing and having to wear masks, et cetera. Uh, it's just, it's not, it's not a pretty job. And I don't want to go too much on my soapbox here about how much we pay these folks, but we don't pay them anything. And so I, I do, I do, I do feel some sympathy for them. Although you would think, you would think they would have had a better plan going in if one at all. And the yeah. governor too, by the way, Joey, the governor has been frustrated by the, by the legislative process since he first got there, but there's an argument to be made that he should have been louder uh, about what he wants to see as opposed to saying, okay, if they pass a tax increase, I'll consider it. Uh, the, 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 that, that really doesn't do much, Joey, because in Nevada, if you pass a tax out of legislature, you already have two thirds in both houses and the governor can't veto it because, I mean, he could, but it's meaningless because it'll be immediately overridden because two thirds is what you need to override a veto. Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit. You brought up the mining tax uh, increase. Let's, that, that's why we were up so late last night. You want to talk about that kind of, that was, seems to be the, the biggest moment so far that we've kind of seen. Yeah, it was great political theater. Uh, I wish it hadn't lasted until 3.30 in the morning, but it was great <laughs> political theater. Ever since the beginning of the session and even before the session, progressive groups have been saying, you have to tax mining. We've never essentially taxed mining. I, I, you, Joey, you did a great video. People should go on the site and watch it to show how mining is taxed in this state. It's very mm -hmm. bizarre. The miners, to, to distill it, the miners essentially wrote the Constitution in 1864 and wrote in some taxation protections uh, for them. I've always said that the gaming industry here is jealous of the miners because they have protections <laughs> that the gaming industry doesn't. So there's very few ways to get at mining and tax them without doing a constitutional amendment, uh, which may at some point occur, has come up before. They can't do that in a special session. They can only begin the process by passing a resolution. So essentially, the only way to extract mining, yes, money from mining, yes, that's a bad pun, is, is, <laughs> is to remove what are about a dozen deductions that mining is allowed to take 
before they actually have to pay taxes. And that's why it's called the net proceeds of minerals tax, because it's net after they take all their deductions, which means some of them don't have to pay much at all or zero. And so that's constantly frustrated a whole bunch of groups. I'm old enough to have been writing that mining should be paying more for 30 plus years, Joey, and they should. And so finally, the, out of the blue, the Democrats in the Assembly introduced a bill that is very close to the same concept that was introduced in 2011 and went nowhere, which is taking a percentage of those deductions away, each of the deductions. In, in 2011, it was down to 40%, and, 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 and in 2020, it's 60%. So that was the bill that was introduced. It was known, our reporters certainly knew it, and any knowledgeable insiders knew that it was going to go nowhere in the Senate because Ben Kiekefer and Heidi Ganser, considering the, considered the two potential Republicans for taxes, uh, had already said they wouldn't vote for it. Now, one wild card here that we should mention, and I was surprised he said it on the floor, uh, but, but our reporters, of course, because they're the best in the state, picked up on it, Joey, is Keith Pickard, uh, who's also a Republican senator, said he absolutely would have voted for this if it had been earmarked for education. But his frustration, he said, is that the money is just going to go into a general pot in the general fund and maybe help mitigate cuts to state employee benefits, et cetera. So uh, as we sit here and we should tell people that we're recording this podcast uh, on, on Friday morning as they are out of session, that bill is dead. It did not get the two thirds uh, that it needed in the Senate. But here's the thing about uh, legislative sessions that I learned over the years, Joey, nothing is really dead until that final gavel comes down. Anything can be resurrected. And so maybe Keith Pickard will, will have seen the light and decide that he can vote for it. Maybe the Democrats will give in to him and, and earmark the money for education. But I, I consider that relatively unlikely, but possible. Yeah. So what has passed so far? What, what, what bills have we seen go through the process? Well, we have seen, as I, as I mentioned, the, the, the low-hanging fruit has essentially yeah. passed, where they have uh, taken money out of the Capital Projects Fund, where they have swept money from the Highway Fund, from what is known as the Government Services Tax, which is essentially the, 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 the jargon for the car registration fees that everybody hates to pay, and, but, but raises a decent amount of money. They changed the formula to get some of that money out of the Highway Fund and put it into the General Fund. But what also happened last night was for the first time, the Democrats and the Republicans presented their major cuts that they want to restore plans. And, and there's some similarities, but the, the debate to watch going forward is, is, is something that was passed during the Sandoval administration, which is a, a program called Read by Three which is a lot of money that is put into, into a program to get kids to read by, by third grade. And so the Republicans want to keep that, the Democrats not so much. Uh, and so that's going to be a very interesting political and policy debate, I would guess, that's going to start unfolding this weekend. Is there anything else that we should be looking forward to, or not, not looking forward to, but looking ahead towards uh, for, for cuts? So I don't think, that, and people can go on, on our site, Joey, and look at the two spreadsheets 
that mm -hmm. our reporters posted that show the, the potential restoration of cuts. There will be other tweaks that will be made, but the real question is, is unless Keith Pickard and the Democrats are able to come to some kind of a deal on, on taxes, the, the, the debate over raising revenue is pretty much over. And so you would think that they're just going to spend this weekend tinkering around with the differences between both the parties and between the houses too. The Democrats in the, in, in, in the Senate and Democrats in the Assembly may have different ideas uh, of what to do. And behind the scenes, there are negotiations going on about what to include in the, in the second special session if the governor's not so mad at him uh, for not finishing that he doesn't call the second special session. So <laughs> theoretically, they could finish this weekend, uh, Joey, and start the second special session on criminal justice reform, some, some election bill that will open up more polling sites for November and things like that. And, and may, maybe do a few other things on, on safety for workers and, and, and liability for businesses, some trade-offs there. And you would think that they could negotiate all of that stuff before the second special session starts, which could start as early as Monday and be done as early as Wednesday. But my, I'm way too tired. And I don't just mean from last night, but from 30 plus years of covering this to, to be that optimistic that that's how it's going to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, keep up the good work. Is there anything else that we should be uh, looking at for this or should we just, you know, I mean, at this point they haven't finished the first one. We, we, I think we were talking on Monday about doing this segment. We're like, Oh, hopefully they'll be done by Friday. So we can just do a recap. And clearly we're still in the middle of it. So hopefully next week we can recap at least the first special session. And optimism is not really, it's not really a, a good quality to have when it comes to the legislature, <laughs> but you, I guess you should try to keep hope alive. One other thing I just want to quickly mention, uh, hmm. Joey, is that, is that our photographer, David Calvert has been the photographer of record for this session. Uh, it is a historic session. I hope people will go and look at the, at the photo essays that you have helped put together. David Calvert has done a fantastic job of capturing a the mood, the emotions of, of this session, and, and it's going to be a real historical document, and people should take a look at that because I, I think he's done a phenomenal job. All right, John. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, and now we're going to move over to talk with Riley about uh, kind of what it's like reporting in the building. Sounds good. Thanks, Joey. So I am here with uh, Riley Snyder, and Riley has been in Carson City a lot recently uh, to help cover the special session from inside the building, and you're one of the few people other than the lawmakers and the essential staff in the building that are allowed in. Can you just tell me, you know, what's the vibe in the building right now? Yeah, so just as a little bit of background, due to the coronavirus pandemic, the Legislative Council Bureau and leaders of the legislature decided to not allow members of the public or lobbyists into the legislative building. So really, it's just reporters. There's probably a group of eight to 12 of us who are there on a rotating fashion. There's rules about how many reporters from one outlet can be there at a time. The staff of the Legislative Council Bureau, so the people who kind of like run the behind the scenes work at the building and actual legislators themselves. So it's very eerie. It's very kind of surreal to be like the only other person in the room when they're dealing with these big budget decisions that affect so many people. You know, it's understandable why they did what they did. They've been taking a lot of public testimony um, in the chamber. So that's a welcome, you know, ability for people to participate. But it's easily one of the strangest special sessions or vibes I've ever been a part of for sure. Yeah, you're sending us pictures, you know, in the slack sometimes of just empty hallways or, or chairs roped off. And it, it is it seems like it's a very bizarre atmosphere. How, how has that affected, you know, lawmaking and voting? It seems like it's, you know, still kind of trucking along, right? Yeah. So usually during a special session, you would expect a lot of lobbyists and a lot of members of the public to be meeting 
with lawmakers during the usually truncated uh, amount of time they meet for a special session. It can um, go for a maximum of 20 days, but usually done within sometimes one to two, but I'll often go out to like 10 or 15 days. So not having that's a little weird, not having people like kind of thronging them in the hallways, trying to talk to them is a little strange. Really, it's just a lot of meetings going on. And the other part of it too is like, everything is done through text or email now anyway. So people are still communicating. You know, there's a few lobbyists who have come up to Carson City and they'll meet with them afterwards or they'll just meet remotely. But for the most part, they're pretty accessible through text or email or social media and things like that. So in terms of the, you know, the input people can have in the process, it, that hasn't changed too much. So what's it like just going into the building? I know there's tents set up outside with the National Guard who's checking um, temperatures and stuff like that. So how's that work? Yeah, so every morning what they do is they have a system set up where you go in, you get your temperature screened, you um, look through a list of like 14 questions about symptoms related to COVID. If you pass that, they'll give you a sticker that has the day's date on it, and that's kind of your your ticket in. Otherwise, the doors are locked to, to everyone else. They ask that you have a mask on at all times in the building. Compliance with that has like been pretty great, like around, I'd say 98%, probably for people walking around and, and doing things in the building. You know, they have hand sanitizer everywhere. They've installed these things on bathrooms. You can open them with your foot as opposed to like touching surfaces. A lot of this they had done before, but I think it's kind of stepped up since news came out that one of the legislators tested positive for COVID. So once that happened, we saw probably about a quarter of the legislature decided to meet remotely. They passed special rules this session that allowed them to do that. So it's been another change where like the people you see inside the building and communicate with are, it's become increasingly smaller and smaller as people are meeting and voting like remotely from their their hotel room or their office just sort of like an abundance of caution to not try to be in a a large group of people yeah is there anything else you want to add about the the challenges of reporting on something like this it is um very different from normal legislative reporting in terms of they didn't want us to like talk to people in hallways and kind of the the fun and like where you actually you know make news and relationships in legislative reporting is talking to these people trying to get a sense of what's going on. In special sessions, it's always different because instead of a bunch of topics all kind of like culminating in a very hard deadline, now we have a very narrow set of topics with like kind of an unknown deadline because they can go for 20 days, but they could call another special session if they haven't figured it out by then. So it has been challenging. Like we've obviously been able to make it work and have just communicated through text or just set up certain interviews, but it is weird to like stand six feet away from people, try to like give them enough room, um, try to arrange things over text or email or social media. So it's been challenging, but obviously we're glad that we're able to still access the building and have access um, and be physically there even when, you know, other members of the public can. And just, I guess, last question, uh, any, any sign of it wrapping up anytime soon or is it too hard to tell? It's too hard to tell. I would say, you know, ideally, maybe they would be done this weekend, just based on conversations that, that I've heard and been a part of. But there's just a million things that can go wrong and things usually do. So I would expect it to wrap up, you know, maybe Sunday or Monday, maybe, but it's just hard to tell. All right. Thanks, Riley. Keep up the good reporting. Thanks, Joey. All right. So we're here today with Nevada State Treasurer Zach Conine, who has been put in charge of a major project to distribute $50 million of CARES Act money to help with rent assistance. And this is going to help both residential tenants and commercial tenants to sort of help meet their bills and kind of ease out of the current eviction moratorium that Nevada has had in place since late March. So thanks so much for joining us in the podcast, Treasurer. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Although I would say it's more of a coalition of the willing. We've got GoEd, the housing department. We've got business and industry and plenty of others are helping to make sure that this can become a reality. Great. So since we first heard that this money was there a couple weeks ago, we haven't really heard too many details about how it's going to be distributed. So could you give us a brief rundown of, of where you guys are at in getting this money out the door? So let's talk about the residential program first. That's $30 million, uh, and that's going to start later this week, so somewhere around the middle of July. And the intention there is to work with regional housing authorities in Clark, in Reno, and in our rural communities in order to let them be the first line of contact uh, with renters who need help. Renters will reach out through one landing page uh, on the state's housing webpage, and then they'll be able to go to the individual program based on where they live. Approximately how much can a tenant get? So the average uh, rental rate in the state is about $1,200. And so the goal is to help for those three months tenants to get uh, paid back. So if your rent is higher, you'll be able to access more funds. If your rent is lower, you'll be able to access fewer funds. But we did want to cap the average monthly income of the individuals who are receiving the money. So in order to be eligible, there's a series of criteria. But one is that your income can't exceed 120% of the average monthly income for that county. Okay, so how much is that in kind of practical terms? Let's just say Clark County. Absolutely. So Clark County, if it was a one-resident household, that's about $63,000 a year is 120% of the average monthly income. If you have a kind of, you know, two parents and a child, that's 81000 a year. And is this going to be need-based aid? Do they have to file an application, affidavits that they're unemployed or another need? Yeah, so the first, the first gate is around they have to have a need that's created by the COVID-19 pandemic. That's one of the requirements of the Coronavirus Relief Fund, which is, of course, how this thing is being funded, right? That $836 million that the state got in April to help out with the response and then the recovery from the coronavirus. So they need to be able to state and certify that they were impacted by uh, that. They have to have a current active lease where back rent is owed. They have to have, as I said, the gross annual housing income at or below the 120%. They have to not be receiving federal voucher housing assistance because we don't want to kind of overlap with existing programs. And they have to have liquid household resources of under $3,000. Now, are you guys going to prioritize people that maybe haven't gotten their unemployment benefits yet or just are in kind of a more emergency situation and then maybe other folks are put at the back of the line? Yeah, so we wanted to make sure that this money gets out the door as soon as possible. So we're going to be prioritizing people in a first-come, first-served basis within the individual buckets. So Clark County is uh, obviously managing all the residents in Clark um, and then the Reno Authority and the rural authority. So each of those will have prioritization based on first come, first serve. But the intention is to get the money out as soon as humanly possible to help people. And how many months of assistance can they get? So they can get uh, three months of assistance, um, but we're going to constantly look at the program. One of the things we've realized looking at this and other programs uh, around the country that have been successful is that you want to have as much flexibility as humanly possible. None of us have dealt with providing assistance during a pandemic before, right? So we're trying to be intellectually flexible and make sure that we're quickly able to adjust the program as necessary. This is also going to like small businesses and stuff. How are you going to prioritize businesses? Absolutely. So let's talk about the commercial side. Now, that's still uh, up for conversation, but I can share sort of where we are right now. Now, it's all obviously subject to change as we work with our different partners and get feedback from stakeholders. It was really important for us to get information from the realtors, from NAOP, from tenants' rights groups. Um, the culinary has been involved, legal aid centers of southern and northern Nevada, et cetera. Um, so the $20 million that's focused on commercial 
rental assistance will cover the three months that the moratorium was in place, so April, May, June, and that's going to work a little bit differently. Instead of being first come, first serve, we're going to manage that process. We're going to let people know that applications are coming and what information has to be there. One of the things that we've seen other programs do around the country is there's a a pretty big gap between the information you ask for and the information you're actually receiving the first time. Uh, We saw that really with the PPP program. The information that was asked for was very specific. Um, A way around that that we're going to try is we're going to have a time frame where we'll tell people about the program, get them ready. Then we're going to open applications for a certain period of time, probably a week or two weeks. And then after those applications come in, we're going to prioritize them based on uh, priorities that we've set internally. It seems like those priorities are going to fall into two groups, size of economic hardship, which will be defined as revenue decline period over period, right? So if you did $100 in sales last year and you did $30 in sales this year, you'll move to the top of the pile versus somebody who did $100 in sales and then 90 this year, right? And we're going to gate dollars first for uh, women and minority-owned businesses. And then those applications, those single-page applications, will be force-ranked based on first uh, women and minority-owned businesses with over 50% revenue decline. And we're going to go through those and then different groups from there, with the idea being that after uh, we set that priority limit from that first week, we can reach out to that first group. Then they'll have a week to get us the information. It'll be a much more hands-on process working with the business, Um, really focused towards small businesses. The top line, uh, so the biggest award that someone could get is $10,000, right? So we're really focused on that small business, um, that entrepreneur in Nevada that makes up such a big portion of our workforce. What we're trying to avoid is a repeat of the PPP situation where you had a natural advantage if you were a larger company that had financial staff in-house and a lawyer in-house, et cetera. We really want to make sure that we get dollars out the door for small businesses first. So you've got, let's say, residential program, $30 million. Everyone's sort of capped at, it sounds like $3,600 sort of of rent. How far is this going to go? It will go farther than original plans, it probably won't go far enough. So that's about 25,000 months of rental assistance. The Gwynn Center put out a report today that sizes the problem at many multiples larger than that. I think this is a good first step, and I would certainly encourage, if this program works, that we'll go back and try to get additional funding to keep supporting. I, I should say all of these things are subject to IFC approval and the other individual stakeholders in the process. Let's just say you get thousands and thousands of applications, tens of thousands. How do we avoid a situation like what Dieter is going through? It's a good question. I think one way is to One way is to be honest about the capacity and try to make sure the system is robust as possible so that if individuals are having uh, trouble, they're having trouble because there is not enough resources, right? We have finite resources and a a much larger, almost infinite problem. What can you say about sort of the state of housing here in Nevada since the pandemic hit? I mean, we know there's an eviction moratorium. I think that's probably been helping a lot of folks make it by, but but what can you kind of say big picture about what you're hearing? So we look at housing, obviously housing is a human right, and we know that it's become uh, a health issue when you've got to stay home for Nevada, stay home to stay safe, you have to have a home to stay in, right? So I think that was the, the first impetus behind that eviction moratorium. The second piece is, as we look towards how we're going to recover 
out of the pandemic. We look at overhangs that really impacted us during the 2008, 2009, 2010, and then 11 period, right? And that recovery was in some ways held up because of the housing crisis. We have a state that's really dependent on, really dependent on sales tax, really dependent on consumer discretionary type of behaviors. And if housing is unstable, or unstable, you end up with people making different decisions, right? They're less likely to go spend money because they're more worried about, am I gonna lose my house next month? Nevada has had a housing shortage on the affordable housing side for a while. It's a combination of demand and supply, right? This isn't going to fix that, but we hope to not exacerbate the problem. Great, well, I think we'll leave the podcast interview at that. Thank you so much for talking with us about this important program that I know a lot of Nevadans will want to take advantage of once it gets up and running. Thanks so much, Treasure. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Zach Conine, John Ralston, Riley Snyder, and Megan Messerly for being on the podcast this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we're doing, you can email us at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our original theme song was written and performed by People With Bodies, a local band up in Reno. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.